0: You know, this church has been around for nearly 200 years. And one of the mottos that we've carried with us for some time is this simple motto about the scriptures. It says, where the Bible speaks, we speak. And where the Bible is silent, we are silent. That's a way to say very clearly that we're not going to add to the Bible, nor are we going to take anything away from it. And I know that in the the world we live in today, many people want to add and many people want to take away. And what I've discovered is that when something gets really difficult, It becomes very hard to hold on to it. Jesus had taught it like this. He said, if you hold on to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Now listen, some of you are holding on to Jesus' teaching. You know the difficulties of it in this culture. He says, then you'll know the truth. And what? The truth will set you free. Holding on to something that is difficult is hard to do. You ever held on to a diet? That's hard to do, isn't it? Uh, The hardest part about a diet is not watching what you eat. The hardest part is watching what other people are eating and wanting it for yourself. How about holding on to an exercise goal? Now, that's a hard thing to do. I had a guy who uh, I know on social media brag that he did 500 plus crunches at the gym. I'm thinking the only crunches I do throughout the day are Nestle's crunches and Captain Crunches. That's about the extent of it. You know, when Christ ascended into heaven after his resurrection, that was 40 days later, he ascended into heaven after he bodily rose from the dead. Ten days after that came a time in the church history called Pente- Pentecost. That was a time when the Spirit of God was unleashed upon those that were believers in that day. There was such a mighty act of power done through them that even the greatest skeptics of the day marveled at the power of God at work in their life. You know, we find out why the power of God was at the work, at work in those early Christians that day is because they stayed devoted to the Scriptures. They stayed devoted to Jesus' teaching. You know, church, any time that we start to abandon God's word, any time that we start to throw it aside and try to bend it or make it kind of conducive to our lifestyle and change the truth, you know what happens to the church? It becomes a dark place. It doesn't become a place of light anymore. It doesn't become a place of hope anymore. It just becomes another social club. You see, it's the truth of scripture that makes us different and it transforms us and gives a place like this and people like you power. And in the book of Acts, it tells us where the power came from and why they held tight to us. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Do you see that word devoted? That's the word that means to adhere. It's like they super glued themselves to the teachings. And when they did so, their lives became radically transformed. And when people saw the lives of those early Christians transformed, they knew that there was something different within them. And they recognized that power at work within them was Jesus himself. Friends, the church became unstoppable during that time, and people accepted the Word of God as the perfect truth, and the pages that they had of Scripture, the minimal of pages that they have of Scripture, they cherished, and they were prized possessions. You see, let me tell you and remind you about this book, this book that sits in your laps now or that's in the chair rack in front of you that all of us have access to in this room. This book is a popular book. Max Licato, who is a popular Christian author, had said about this book that the Bible has been banned, it's been burned, it's been scoffed at and ridiculed. Scholars have mocked it as foolish. Kings have branded it as illegal. A thousand times over, the grave has been dug and the dirge has been sung, but somehow the Bible never stays in the grave. Not only has it survived, it has thrived. It is the most popular book in all of history, he says. It has been the best-selling book in the world for years. This book that you have has been translated into about 1,500 plus different languages. This book that you have in your hand today has been published and printed 100 million copies each and every single year. There is no book that even comes close to that amount. And may I also remind you that this is a very durable book. Jesus had said about the scripture, the pages of this book, the sky and the earth won't last forever, but he said, but my words will. One day, the world will be consumed by a blazing ball of fire, the Bible teaches us. But the words of God, the internal truth of Jesus, will remain forever. And this book contains the words of Jesus. You see, this book is durable. It's been attacked and it's been criticized. Governments have tried to push it away and wipe it out. Voltaire, who was a very famous French philosopher and also a very outspoken and brilliant atheist, had said about this book that 100 years from today, the Bible will be a forgotten book. And you said, Voltaire who? Because you can't remember who he is, but you remember this book. And just so you're aware, when Voltaire died, the French Bible Society bought his house, turned it into a storehouse for the scriptures, and started selling Bibles out of it, and had done so for hundreds of years following his death. People have forgotten about the quote of Voltaire, but very few forget about the quotes that happened from this book of scripture. It's a powerful book. This book offers more than just the meanings to gain information, While there's information and knowledge to be gained here, this book offers transformation, and that is something completely different. Friends, it is one thing to know the contents of the Bible. It is a completely different thing to know the author of it. And when you get to know the author, it completely transforms you and gives you power to live out what this book asks us to obey. You see, this book has changed people. This book has started schools and hospitals and orphanages and homeless shelters and food pantries. Once people read this book and were changed by what the context of this book had to say, they opened those things up and became better to their fellow man. Andrew Jackson, who was one of the presidents of the United States, said about the foundations of the United States in this book, that the Bible is the rock on which our republic rests. The foundation of the republic. Friends, neighborhoods have been changed because of this book. Uh, Homes have been changed because of this book. Family lineage has been changed because of this book. There is power, power in what is written in this book. Friends, but may I remind you, this is a dangerous book. So dangerous that still 18 countries in the world won't allow this book to be handed out to the masses. They're afraid about what this book holds and the change of culture it will create for them. You know, China is the largest country to make owning this book illegal. 1.4 billion Chinese are restricted from reading this book and do not have access to the scriptures like you have today. Yet with that number, 31 million Chinese publicly proclaim that they are Christians, that they are proud believers in the scriptures, and the author of this book, God himself. Friends, many of those people would do about just anything they could just to get a peek at some of the pages that you have in your hand today. And those 18 governments that have outlawed the Bible because it's dangerous to their way of life and will totally remodel their culture, which is what they don't want, they don't believe in the message. The message, the message that Christ will forgive you, the message that God loves you and that you don't have to have some kind of merited favor to get your way or do more so that God will love you more the message that one sin or a million sins, we're all in need of a Savior named Jesus. A message of forgiveness of our moral debts. A message of moral new life in Jesus Christ. A, a message that God built it, we broke it, and Jesus came to fix it. Friends, what this book is, is God's pathway of how he redeemed us through human history. That's what this book is about. And friends, this is an important book. Because when you open up the pages of this book, you're introduced to one of the greatest figures of all time in human history that will ever be. His name is Jesus. And when you recognize that that Jesus was just not just a man, he was more than a man, he was God in the flesh, this book becomes a very important book to you. Important book, but also a very cherished book. This book is cherished because there were people for thousands of years that didn't have the word of God next to them. They had to wait for an angel of the Lord to come down and speak to them. They had to wait for a prophet of God to come and speak to them. They didn't have the holy scriptures in their laps like you do today. This is a cherished book because it had to take an earth-shattering moment for them, for God to speak. Now it rests on our lampstands, it, at the top of our coffee tables. Some of you of us have re- relegated it to a, a decoration or a family tradition that sits somewhere idle. But this book is important and it's cherished because this is God talking to us You see, prayer is when we talk to God. Reading this book is when God speaks to us. That's why we call it God's Word. And you know it as the Bible. The Bible is just Latin for books. There are 66 books which make up this book and are put into a literary form. Not chronological, literary. And this cherished book is also a needed book. And some of you need to hear this today about this book. Within the context of this book, you discover God's attitude towards you. God's attitude is that He loves you and He wants to see you repent and turn from a wicked way of life or an old way of life or a sinful way of life or a life filled with regret or mistakes. However, you want to define those moral failures, God says, Would you turn from them and would you come to me? And God says, But I'm perfect and you're not. So I made a way that you couldn't make yourself. And that way is called Jesus. And He is the way and He is the truth and He is the life. And anyone who comes through Jesus, will be saved. He's not going to push you away or hold you back. You come to Jesus, and you'll be redeemed and rescued. Some of you needed to hear that today. That's why this is a needed book. Friends, this is also a truth-filled book. Amen? And we believe that this is the truth of God's word. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It's page 965 in the Bible in the chair rack in front of you. And while you open up there, let me just give you some more interesting things about this book. You see, these 66 books make up the Bible that have been written over a 1,500-year period by 40 different authors who lived in three different continents and spoke three or wrote the Bible into three different languages. Yet all 66 books have one continual theme to it. All the 66 books are about Jesus and his coming to earth, and his living on earth, and his dying on earth, and his resurrecting here on earth, and then ascending back into heaven so that we will have salvation here on earth and be with God forever. You know, Dr. Harrietta Mears, she wrote a book called What's the Bible All About? And in it, she outlines that every single book of the Bible, you can find Jesus within it. Even though Jesus was prophesied about 1,000 years ahead of time, you can find Jesus within it. Jesus even accepted that he was the theme of the Old Testament, that he was the theme of this book In Luke chapter 24, verse 27, it says, Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And he told those disciples that those Old Testament scriptures were written about him and for him, so that they would come to know him. Friends, this book is thematic in unity and held together through 1,500 years of writing because it is God-breathed. It is inspired by God, and that leads us to Second Timothy chapter 3, a piece of Scripture that I think every Christian ought to memorize or at least have knowledge about. It says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, around here, we believe that the Bible is God's Word that the Bible is a revelation. It was a book written by God and written about God. That's what revelation means. And we believe that this book was written by God through the instrument or the agents of men. Their personalities are there, but these are the words of God that are on the page before us. That's by God. And about God, you get to know who God is through the pages on the scriptures in front of you there. What could you read or know about God if you didn't have this book? What would you understand about God if you didn't have the pages of Scripture? Friends, this book, the Bible, is so foundational to your faith, and I know how some of us look at it. We feel that it's just a a leather-bound book that has good advice. We feel that it's just a leather-bound book that has some fascinating stories that might even be uh, divinely orchestrated, but maybe not all of them are divinely orchestrated. And maybe you're one of those that said, some of them are real stories and some of them are fake stories, but they all point to God and it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if Jesus believed them or didn't believe in them. Some some have authority of God and some some just have the authority of man. My question to you would be, which are which? And how do you determine? You see, around here we believe that the total scriptures, the full package is authored and complete and perfect. It's all God-breathed. It's all inspired. We believe this Because this is God's word, and we know that it's alive and it's active. You see, Jesus taught it like this. He said, the spirit gives life, and the flesh counts for nothing. Now listen, the words I have spoken to you, Jesus says, they are full of spirit and life. You see, when God spoke these words, scripture, into existence, he spoke them, and they just didn't become letters on a page. They were life-giving to you, and there's a difference Between this book and other self-help books, this book gives you power, not just advice. Self-help books just give you advice. They tell you what needs to be done, but they don't give you the power to see it through. So you might be reading a self-help book on how to break a habit or how to overcome worry. That's all good and everything, and that's helpful on knowing you should, but it's this book that gives you the power to overcome worry and cast all your anxieties on him. Amen? This is the book that gives you the power to break your hurts, habits, and hang-ups and to say, I am not an addict. I am a Christian who happens to struggle with addiction, but Christ can deliver me from these things. Christ can restore me to the old or the new man and the new woman. This book gives us the power to go back and have new life, life in Christ. You see, we believe what Jesus believed about God's word. And I can trust, I can trust that the Bible is true because Jesus trusts in it. And I've heard people say, and you might be one of those out there as well, Well-meaning Christians even say, you know, I believe in Jesus and I accept his words, but the stuff about Jonah or the stuff about the ark or the stuff about six days of God just speaking things into existence, I find that a little far-fetched, a little fanciful and a little embellished right there. But you know, Jesus trusted in all that. Actually, Jesus trusted in the entire scriptures that were available to him and he quoted it and he spoke it as truth and he brought validity to it when he had said, for truly I tell you, until the heavens and earth disappear not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished he brought validity to it when he said nothing's going to change about it it's going to stay the same friends the word of god is going to remain the same despite how much culture shifts and change and though this might be difficult for some of you to hear what god had said then applies even to today regardless if governments change the law regardless of men or women say not true you know what we find today in churches all over the united states we find that we've become cafeteria christians we get to pick and choose the things that we want from the bible and we say well this is true because it applies to me this is true because i can live that out this is true because it goes to my lifestyle but the things that we don't like. We say, God, you can have this back. I don't believe in it anymore. God, you can have this back. Certainly that was a cultural thing and not a truth statement. And so now we've come to believe that all sins are acceptable and that you can just keep on sinning and you can have your lifestyle of homosexuality. You can have your lifestyle of living a lie. You can have your lifestyle of, of greed and you can still have your savior. You see, it can all come together for you. And you can have what you want in a humanistic way and you can still call Jesus Lord. Friends, that is a fallacy. That is not true. And yet we've tried to bend and manipulate and twist scripture to fit our lifestyle. And when we start believing what Jesus believed, we recognize that there is a line of truth that cannot be bent by human standards. There's also this idea that we can pay attention to the Jesus stuff and we don't need to pay attention to the rest of this stuff. Like some of you would hear the story of Jonah and the great fish and you'd say, come on, That's the biggest fish story ever told. I mean, a guy gets swallowed up by a gigantic fish, lives in the stomach of that fish and survives for three days and then is spit out exactly where he's supposed to go, on the shoreline of Nineveh. You go, that's crazy. That's a children's story. No, that's a a Jesus story because Jesus believed in that literal thing right there. As a matter of fact, he compared it to his own life and his own death. In burial and resurrection, Jesus had said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth and will come out again, rise again. And Jesus saw that as literal. Now I'm just going to ask you kind of a pointed yet kind of a sarcastic question. If Jesus believed that, was he just gullible? And just believed in fish stories? Or do you think it was real? Or how about Noah and the ark and the global flood? Now, I know there's a lot of you out there that say, well, I believe in Noah, but I'm not sure about the ark and that all kinds of animals could be brought in there two by two, and that there was a global flood, I mean, maybe regional, but not global. No, Jesus says it was global, there was an ark, and it was packed full of animals, and there was a man by the name of Noah, and actually, Jesus says, you don't believe me, I'm going to trust in it so much and believe in it so much, I'm going to apply that scripture to my second coming. Oh, by the way, Christ is coming again. Trust it. And Jesus said, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Again, a little sarcastic. Was Jesus gullible to believe that Noah and the ark was literal and it really happened? Or do you trust the words of Jesus? You see, because if you trust the words of Jesus, you have to trust all that he had said. You know, Jesus talked about origins also, and he stated that mankind had been around since the beginning of creation, and there wasn't an evolutionary process. You're saying, where did Jesus say that? Well, in the book of Mark, chapter 10, he said, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. You see, if you believe that evolution is true, then you're saying that the words of Jesus are not. And some of us, for too long, we've been picking and choosing the things of Scripture that we like and the things of Scripture that we don't like, we put back and reject. Well, you don't believe in the truth of Scripture. You believe in yourself, that you're the one that can pick the truth. The Bible can be trusted because Jesus trusted in it. We also believe that the Bible can be true because science validates it. Now, I know a lot of you are like, what? I always thought science and the Bible... We're kind of like butting heads all the time. No, I can trust the Bible because it's scientifically accurate. You may not have heard this one before. But one of the biggest lies out there in the last 75 years is that science and Scripture are at war with one another. And I'd say that there are a few scientists that make it their fight to fight against Christianity, to fight against God's principles, and to fight against the Scriptures. There are those scientists out there. But friends, the fields of science and the Bible are not contradictory. Rather, they're complementary The science and scriptures have never really been at war until the last maybe seven or eight decades. The study and the observation of the universe and the observation of biology and and matter and the creatures that live in it and you and I, humankind, people wanted to understand this world better that they lived in so that they could understand God better. There weren't scriptures in the early days. And they formed fields of science so that they could know the creator by looking at the created things. And you would think that the thousands of years that we've been on this planet, That we would know an awful lot about it, that we know an awful lot about ourselves, that we know an awful lot about the animals and the the space around us, but we don't. According to National Geographic, 86% of Earth's species are still unknown. 86% of Earth's species still unknown. We just don't know. We've been here a long time, and we haven't found them all yet. Still a lot of bugs crawling underneath the rocks, I guess. And while we know a lot about anatomy, and doctors would say, yeah, we know a lot about the human body, they'd be quick to admit that although we know a lot, we only know really about 3% of how it functions from a molecular level to the functions of anatomy like our appendix. You know, we don't know what the appendix is for. Any doctor would be quick to say, nope, not a clue. Some of you are like, but mine's gone. God might say, you need that back. I'm going to use it one day. Or how about while you you think you know the planet and we know it well, we don't know it really at all. 5% of the entire ocean is actually known about very little is known about the ocean. And when you just start putting that into context of science and those that believe in an evolutionary paradigm, they call the ocean the lifeblood of the earth. Yet we know nothing about the ocean and the importance that it plays to this world. And if it's to the evolutionary paradigm, if you believe that way, how come you can base a theory on something we know very little about? Or how about the astronomers? They look at the cosmos and the outer space and they would be quick to say, You know, the galaxies are still expanding. And at the rapid rate of their expansion and what we don't know, you'd have to put the percentage of what we do know at zero percent of what we know about the space around us. And friends, wouldn't you think that God would know something since he created it? Now let's just think about this for a second. God should be able to have something written down here in his word about about the things that we know are true in some scientific fields. Or did, did the junk science get in here? You know, all the junk science that has been around for thousands of years. Did that get in the pages of scripture or did God's laws and truth come out in it? Well, the psalmist had said this. It said, let every created thing give praise to the Lord for he has issued a command and they came into being, meaning God created it. And then it says, he set them in place forever and ever. That means that the laws that God created, laws of inertia, laws of gravity, those have stayed in place and they're gonna continue to stay in place and they will never leave his decree will never be revoked. Friends, you know science is evolving, don't you? But the Bible isn't. The science books are constantly being updated and changed every year, but not the word of God. Why? Because he set it into place forever and ever. Friends, this is not a scientific book, yet it's scientifically accurate. And may I say there was a ton of junk science going on 3,000 years ago while some of the pages of this scripture were written. And let me tell you how the truth of God's Word has stuck to it and has been there in place forever and ever, and how science has had to evolve, though the truth of Scripture has always remained. Let me give you an example. A common belief was that the earth was flat just up until 500 years ago. You recognize now we still have guys that say the earth is flat now? The flat earth movement is going on? There's a common belief that the earth was flat But the Bible has always said it was round, that it was spherical. 2,700 years ago, 2,700 years ago, Isaiah said, wait a minute, fellas, the earth isn't flat, it's round. How do we know that? Well, listen, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. You know that's where we get the word globe? And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them like a tent to live in. You know, Believers in God and his word have always held on to the belief that the earth was round. Moses, Moses who wasn't a scientist, he went before the Egyptians who had an idea about what the earth looked like and what it was held up by. They believed the earth was flat and held up by five pillars. And even though he was raised and educated by the Egyptians, he puts into the scriptures that the earth was round. Or how about the Greeks? The Greeks believed that the earth was held up by a false god named Atlas. You ever seen the picture? And then Atlas is standing on a group of elephants. It's like they're smoking dope or something. And then on top of the elephants, the elephants are standing on top of a turtle, rather. And then the turtle is on top of some kind of giant snake-like creature. I don't know what that is, but it's not right, right? Job had said, Job, in the oldest book of the Bible, here's how Job described how the earth was held and suspended. God spread out the northern skies. Where? In the empty space. He suspends the earth over what? Nothing. How did Job know that? Was he an astronomer? Was he a scientist? Was Moses an astronomer? No. Maybe they didn't write it. Maybe God inspired them to. And for thousands of years, scientists had believed that the the stars could all be counted. Could you imagine that? Uh, Hipparchus had said that there are 1,022 stars. Ptolemy later came around and said, Hipparchus, you're wrong. It's (laughs) 1,056. And I love the prophet Jeremiah who came way before them. He declared, no, the stars of the sky cannot be counted. You know, friends, if Jeremiah were to walk into a room with those two men, they would have laughed him out of the science lab. And it wasn't until the great Galileo came along and he said, you know what? Jeremiah was right. There are so many stars and they're still expanding, too numerous to count. How did Jeremiah come up to that conclusion? Did he have a giant telescope he wasn't telling anybody about? Maybe he didn't write the words. Maybe, maybe God authored them through him. The Greek scientist Hippocrates, we all know he is famous for modern medicine. He came up with what's called the four humors of medicine. It was widely believed, widely believed up until 200 years ago. 200 years ago that black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm, and blood caused disease. Like too much blood could make you sick and die. You're aware that our first president, George Washington, on his deathbed, they bloodlet him. They, they cut his wrists because they thought that if they could release the blood from his veins and get rid of that blood, it would remove the disease and he would be okay. They killed him on the, death, on the bed by just bloodletting. Friends, we know that's not right. The Bible could have told you that a long time ago. It's not that we have too much blood. Sometimes we have not enough blood, and sometimes we just need a blood transfusion. You see, in the book of Leviticus, 3,200 years before, God had told Moses, there is life in the blood. The blood is life. Now, how did Moses know that before doctors found that to be true 150 years ago? Maybe Moses didn't write it. Maybe God inspired him to. Or what about plagues? you saying, well, what about them? Well, did you know just not very recently do we know much, much about infectious disease? I mean, bubonic plague, they just let people hang out together. There was no isolation. There was no quarantine. There was no real concept of germs. But all the way back thousands of years before, God told a man named Moses, when someone is sick, you remove them from the camp. You isolate them and keep them out on the outskirts of camp for a n- number of days until they are well. You quarantine them. Hey, how did Moses know about infectious disease? Was he a part of the CDC? No. Maybe Moses didn't write it. God did. And let me just kind of say a brief word to some of you in this room today who, who trust Jesus with your soul, but you just haven't trusted him with your mind. Man, you've come up short about nine inches. You've got it here in the heart. You just haven't let this stuff play in to affect your mind yet. And many of you in this room, you believe in Jesus, but not, not in the literal interpretation of Scripture. Like you want to bend it or, or treat it so, so that it can be like more washed up and cleansed so that when you're in your peer group or friend group or, or in your class, it becomes a little bit more palatable for others to take. And you might say, oh, okay, come on, Matt, I, I get it. If I were to go back to my job tomorrow and I were going to tell people that I believe in a literal genesis, and I believe that the, the earth was spoken to existence over a period of actual six days like Jesus did, and I believe that the earth is 6,000 years old like Jesus did rather than billions of years. I would be laughed out of my science lab. Oh, you'd be laughed out of your science lab like Isaiah was when he said the earth was round and everyone said it was flat. Like Jeremiah did when he says there's too many stars to count. And they said, no. Nope. There's just a little over a thousand. Or like Moses when he said, life is in the blood. And they said, no, 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 get rid of the blood. Or like Job when he says, the earth is floating in space. And they said, no, it's not. It's on the back of some guy on top of some elephants, on top of some turtle, on top of some snake. You See, Jesus took into account Genesis and he said, this is literal stuff. And here's my question to you, just kind of on a a basic liminary line of, of, of thought if Jesus believed in all that literal stuff, was he wrong? And if he was wrong, can you be made whole or can you be saved by a savior that is imperfect whose words you cannot trust? Are you seeing where we're going? If one is not true, All is not true. And perhaps the challenge for you today is to break away from some secular thought and start getting grounded in God's word and say this is the truth. And the more that we learn from science, the more that it begins to apply to God and his word to show that it actually is the real deal. Friends, this scripture tells us that every word of God proves true. Do you believe that? Every word of God proves true. And I'm not going to be ashamed about this book. Because it's in the context of this book, I was introduced to Jesus. In the context of this book, I discovered that I have sin, moral failures, and I need a Savior. It's in the context of this book that the Apostle Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And As believers of this place, you shouldn't be ashamed. You see, I made a decision years ago to not, my, not make it my responsibility to try to defend this book. Some of you say, Pastor, that's crazy. You should be one of the lead defenders. No, 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 no. If the author is truly God, I think God is pretty powerful and plenty smart to defend his work himself. I made a responsibility a long time ago that I'm not gonna defend this, but that I'm just gonna obey this. And if I trust Jesus with his words of salvation, then I'm gonna trust all the rest of the stuff it says, and I'm gonna make sure that as my responsibility is to obey it, That I'll live out the teachings of Jesus and just as he told us, blessed are those who hear the word of God, who hear the word of God and obey it. And friends, today, today maybe the challenge for you is to accept the word of God, to understand the scriptures and to say truly this is God's word spoken to me and I believe it just as Christ believed it for it is the power of God at work in our life.